I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In today's holiday episode, we welcome a very special guest, Alan Gina. Alan is the co-founder of CT Strategies, which is a firm that helps clients navigate border management and supply chain challenges. Before CT Strategies, Alan served as the Assistant Commissioner for International Trade and other positions in his 30-year-plus career at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. We'll ask Al about the CBP's role in the trade world and much, much more in this episode of The Trade Guys. Don't miss this one because you're going to learn a lot about what Customs does and doesn't do in the trade world. Happy holidays to all. This is a special, very special Trade Guys episode. We've got Bill here wearing his Santa Claus outfit. Scott is in um, full reindeer attire. And we have Al Gina, who is here with us to tell us about CPB, the Customs and Border Patrol, and how that fits in to you know trade and all the things that we talk about typically on this program. Al, welcome. Thanks for being here today. When folks think of CBP, they probably think of border security. They think about what's going on in our southern borders, but they're not typically thinking about trade. What's the nexus between trade and customs and border patrol? Well, first, when most people think about CBP, you're correct in that they think it's customs and border patrol, but it's actually customs and border protection. Protection. And U.S. Border Patrol is a component office within the agency of customs and border protection. So you're right. I think most people think of it relative to its national security responsibilities. So if you might let me explain, because most people thought of customs when it was under the Treasury Department. So uh, for many of your listeners, they might know in March of 03, when the Department of Homeland Security was created, most of legacy customs became part of Customs and Border Protection and was complemented by inspectors from agriculture, inspectors from legacy immigration. The entire custom uh, U.S. Border Patrol came over from mm-hmm. INS, yeah. and it created this new agency. So a lot of the discussion currently is focusing on immigration, the southwest border, a border wall. But you're absolutely right. CBP remains the agency responsible for all of those customs requirements, those trade requirements, uh, collecting duties, taxes, revenue, and making sure imports comply with all import regulations and requirements. And the job has just gotten more complicated with the sort of rapid-fire changes in in our terms of trade. So uh, one of the effects of the Trump administration has been the president's focus on tariffs as a tool and his apparent glee in using them uh, frequently and sometimes sometimes it appears indiscriminately and uh he's tariff man yes he is he is (laughs) his tariff man of course (laughs) making his appearance but uh, in any case but but customs then has to deal with all this that has to implement it and and that 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 is you know really challenging so we have we have the circus elephants coming down the streets announcing the new tariffs and customs and border protection as the people in the back with the shovels and and brooms you know cleaning up behind it and making sure that that there's order at the border right you know 
probably a very good metaphor. Uh, I would describe it as uh, CBP is the enforcement arm okay. of the tariffs that get implemented by other components within the United States government, whether it's the Congress, whether it's the executive branch, the U.S. Treasury, because they still are responsible for all things revenue. And then it's up to CBP is how do we ensure or how do they ensure that people are complying with these increased tariffs, uh, that people are paying the appropriate duties and taxes, that they're not trying to circumvent those tariffs or trying to employ illicit activities to prevent them from being impacted by these added tariffs. I would just add, I think the tariffs were there for a specific reason. We can go way back into the history of this country. It was there to protect domestic industry. I think as we evolved and more companies became international in scope, tariffs became more of a challenge now that you had U.S. manufacturers importing source material and others from outside the country. But I think in my experience, I spent over 30 years at CBP. This is the first time I've seen an administration use tariffs almost as an, an item to drive an agenda. And maybe yes. not an agenda that's specific to trade, but it's going to use trade tariffs in order to try to get countries to comply. Right. Yeah, you're, you're right about the change in use of the tool. Because for a long time, basically, American companies tended to see the world as a as a, an interesting target market and were really very much promoting sort of reciprocal market access and prepared to lower U.S. tariffs in return for better terms of trade abroad. So there was this this decline in, in tariffs sort of on a broad-based levels uh, following the Second World War. And so the, the collections continued to go down. That seemed to be the trend. And it was reversed very quickly, but also the rationale for it changed. So how many shipments actually get inspected versus traffic of, of goods with trusted shippers that, that, that happens almost automatically? What's the enforcement versus sort of monitoring function? Because I know I walk by the customs person at, at Dulles Airport and usually just wave <laughs> and hand him my little sort of, sort of paper with a blue stripe at the top. Right, but, right, and right. and I, I wasn't inspected on that particular trip. So right, They're not asking you if you've got like a stash of like illegal bourbon or something like that. Right, you know, exactly. Tax-free bourbon, you know, right. whatever. I was trapped once by that. I was by illegal saying, bourbon? No, by a Beanie Baby. Remember oh. those? Yeah, sure. Beanie yeah, Babies sure. were hot. Okay. This is like an 80s, 90s item. It was, uh, I had, uh, <laughs> somebody gave me a Beanie Baby when I was, I guess, in China or someplace, and I was stopped on the way out by one of those people in, uh, at, at Dulles who uh, looked at my bags and found my Beanie Baby, which was all of $1.49, I think, yeah. which I had not declared. I felt terrible. And so they made you do what? They didn't. They made me put it back in my bag and leave. Yeah. Okay. Right. So it wasn't that traumatic. <laughs> no. <laughs> it just embarrassing. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't end that yeah. horribly. I did uh, not go to jail I, over I Beanie Babies. Had one USDA inspection, and it was random. Uh, I just was picked out of the line. Said, "Come over here." And mm. They opened my bags. They were obviously. I don't know if they looked for plants or whatever they were looking for. They didn't find it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but on all my international trips. Once, so once, okay. Yeah, yeah. So once you have that innocent face, yeah, I guess so. you have the face of someone who would smuggle a beanie Very baby. Very sinister, yeah, uh, sinister baby, beanie baby smuggler. I, so. I attributed the fact that for some reason I was the first one off the plane and didn't oh. hadn't checked anything, so I was the first one to hit all these people, and they right, decided you were suspicious. I must be anxious to get out yeah. because I was first, and I was. I wanted to go home, but <laughs> we used to call those uh, runners the ones who want to run out of the federal inspection site. So, so as I answer it, 
I was a uniformed officer in the field. I spent 15 years before coming to headquarters on the five-year plan. Where were you stationed? I worked at JFK. Uh, then I went to Jacksonville, Florida for five years. Then I went to Orlando, Florida for five years. I came up here in 1996 on a five-year plan. 96 coincided with unfortunate situation of 9-11. I became what is referred to as headquarters lifer and had various positions. And the last position I had was as the assistant commissioner for the Office of Trade right. at CBP. So the New York accent worked pretty well in your initial jobs and in Florida where there are a lot That's of right. New, New Yorkers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but as I travel the world, as I remind people, I was born in the borough of Queens, so I actually speak the Queens English. There you uh, go. And everybody can understand that. But in answer to your question, uh, you know, I think uh, CBP has become extremely sophisticated mm-hmm. in their risk-based targeting. Right. So while every document and every import or every person coming in is scanned and reviewed for possible high risk, the number of examinations, I guess, CBP is very willing to kind of promote this. About 3% physical examinations of uh, cargo. Inspection of cargo. Inspection. But then a lot of things are done sent through large-scale imaging equipment. I see. Uh, so it's okay. referred to as non-intrusive inspection. Mm-hmm. It's a much more expeditious way you know, to clear that legitimate cargo and, or, you know, same methodology is applied to passengers and what they're bringing into the It's a TSA States. scanner for a truck, basically. Yeah, exactly. drive through. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. You know, so that's the roles and responsibilities mm-hmm. of, you know, how things are targeted. You know, your experience may have been in order to make sure the system is, you know, checked appropriately. There's a sampling methodology to make sure that the actual risk-based targeting is more effective than just a random sampling methodology. And so they're constantly adjusting the algorithms to ensure the effectiveness of that. So Al, walk us through what happens at CBP when tariffs are imposed. What does that change on the ground and at the border? How does the CBP implement tariffs and how are they actually collected? So in you know the current age of automation, a lot of that is done in an automated way. Yeah. But you can imagine the disruption when there's a tweet or there's some kind of an immediate decision that maybe CBP may not have been privileged to be consulted. You have to adjust when there's a tweet? Well, I would say that the agency reacts to the White House's direction as well as the other direction. So, But a tweet can get you mobilized at the border. I would say that CBP kind of adheres to or monitors all kinds of discussions. But no, a tweet would not officially have CBP take action. Okay. This is one of the mysteries of government these days. And actually, there's a- Government by Twitter. Government, yes. And, you know, the president announced, what, three weeks ago that, uh, without telling anybody, apparently, that he was uh, reimposing steel tariffs on Brazil and Argentina. Yeah, we talked about it in the previous episode. That's right. Right. Uh, As near as we can tell, three weeks later, that hasn't happened. There has been no order issued. There's been no proclamation. There's a a statement by Larry Kudlow that walked it back, basically. It's it's under consideration. It's under consideration. Which is not not what the tweet said. The tweet said we're doing it. Yeah. So apparently tweets don't mean as much as they used to. Right. So this, this, in, the, in that case, there was a tweet, there was a lot of media coverage, and then there was a walking back and nothing actually happened. But CBP needs somebody to tell them something formally. That's right. So right? CBP is informed that these certain tariffs are going to be increased. And so, you need, so a they, le- you need some kind of legal justification. You need some rulings. You need some actual paperwork other than an electronic tweet 
by the president of the United States to actually dictate policy. So you have you have to remind the audience that CBP is part of the executive branch. So CBP as an agency works for the executive branch, works for the president of the White House. So normally an agency will have their own due diligence, but when an agency is instructed by the White House to do X, there's an assumption that all of the legality, all of the checks and balances were done so that CBP can take Mm -hmm. the appropriate action and authorization. So CBP, to some degree, gets involved, but generally they are the enforcement. So they're told this tariff is going to be increased. All the adjustments have to be made in the computer system because everything's done via the computer and in an automated fashion. And that creates a cumbersome act to be done as quickly as maybe they're instructed they have to be done by a certain date. What, where that really disrupts in all my years, the trade, and if you were to ask them, what is it? Just one thing that you would want for Christmas. What would you want from CBP? Beanie Babies. And, yeah, <laughs> Beanie Babies. Yeah. Not counterfeit Beanie, no, my, my Beanie Babies. My kids are growing up now, no Beanie Babies. <laughs> they would say, we want predictability. Right. They would say, we can understand you know, what the government has to do to protect national security and to protect economic prosperity and competitiveness. Yep. But as an organization, as long as we have predictability so that we can create our own internal business operations, and when the predictability is gone, as many might argue in today's environment, it's a complete and total disruption to the import and export of the trade, legitimate trade. So you share this with the, all, the, all the traders in the system, all the, all the, the shippers yes. who are working with this, because they want predictability as well. That's right. And if, they, if not predictability, at least transparency, know when there are going to be problems that they can manage them. So, But, you know, I think as just alluded to, even when an indication, whether it's a tweet or an announcement's made, mm-hmm. that trade community is immediately taking action. Right. And that action is an opportunity cost. So people have to take appropriate measures that if that comes to fruition, and then five days later, it doesn't come to fruition, or it never comes to fruition. So the five days that they diverted staff to do X is a lost opportunity that they should have been doing otherwise. And so that whole desire for their transparency and predictability kind of is being somewhat undermined. By the current way. Yeah, that's, that. that's a good point because uh, that people often don't think about. While the tweet doesn't have legal effect, it doesn't change anything, it starts all these wheels turning because right. the assumption is that because the president said that, it's going to happen. At some point, you're going to get an official notice uh, from the president or the White House or somebody that says, do this. And so the only sensible thing to do is to get ready. Tweets move the stock market. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. The stock market moves if the president tweets that, oh, we're close to a deal with China. So enforcement officials then start to plan and shippers start to think through what their options are and what their alternatives are. So everybody's right. making these contingency plans instead of doing today's work. Absolutely. But on the ground, once the implementation of raising the tariffs is put in place, then the big concern for CBP as the enforcement arm, is everyone going to comply? or people going to attempt to circumvent. And like circumvention might be these items are coming from China. That's where the president seems to be focusing his increase in tariffs. And now all of a sudden, an exporter from China is sending his shipment to a third country. 
cutting new paperwork and then having it sent to the United States where it might appear to be a product of third country rather than a product of originating. coming from, from Vietnam. So that's one possible way to circumvent. The other way is they just, importers just misclassify it. So rather than classifying it correctly as widget X that this tariff applies to, they'll classify it as widget Z, which is a different harmonized code number, and hoping that CBP won't realize that, this won't be examined. Some of this would be customs fraud. All right, uh, for, exactly. for, for uh, those kinds of circumstances. All that would be custom all the, fraud. All that's custom that's fraud. Exactly. But there's a, there's a legal side of this, which would be tariff engineering. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, for instance, ha- I know it happens in chemicals a lot because you you have, it, say, a dumping order. or, or So for some reason, there there's a tariff applied to a basic chemical uh, it, coming into the United States. Citric acid was the one I had some familiarity with in a previous life. Uh, and uh, but you could, But there were no tariffs to import citric acid to, to Mexico. And so you basically had it imported to Mexico, sent it to a toll processor, performed a chemical reaction, turned it into to legitimately a different HDS code, uh, and so converted it from a raw material to an intermediate, and then imported it from Mexico at, at, at no tariff. So that, that, that was a, a sort of a legal way. The reason you did it was because of the tariff. It's a kind of circumvention, but it's legal versus fraudulent circumvention. Right. You know, for the benefit of your listeners, it's like income tax loopholes, right? So people who are trying to do what would be construed as quote unquote legitimate, but still how do I reduce my tariff burden or how do I reduce my tax burden? And then there are That's those- That's a good way to think about it, yeah. And then there are those who are just out and out nefarious and have manifest intent to kind of circumvent the proper payment of duty. So I'll give you two good examples, I think, that most people can relate to. So legitimate tariff engineering, you're importing diamond rings. Mm-hmm. So what would you, you would be very smart to do is remove the diamond from the actual band, import them separately, because probably 80 or 90% of the value of that diamond ring is the diamond. Right. And diamonds are allowed to be imported into the United States duty-free because we don't have any diamond diamond, mines. No diamond industry here to protect. And then you just import the gold bands or the platinum bands at a much lower percentage, so the duty you're just paying on that. And that's like legitimate tariff engineering, Mm -hmm. kind of like corporate lawyers figure out legal loopholes for tax purposes. It's like the truck seats. Yes. The Subaru, well, whatever it was called. No, the, the, that's was, the illegal. Or, well, <laughs> no, let's say, let me retract that. Let the courts decide whether that big automotive company, and anybody can just query it, and I'll refrain from naming them. But I think it's 2.5% duty on passenger vehicles. Yes. 25% duty on trucks. So this very large top three automotive company was importing these conveyances, over-the-road conveyances, as passenger vehicles, paying the 2.5%. As soon as they entered into the United States, they took out the back row. They were minivans. They took out the back row seat. They popped out the side windows, put in a metal plate, and then was selling them as cargo vans. 
There's a lot going on here, man. It's like, you know. Well, for 22.5% of the value of the vehicle, yeah. you can put, do a lot of work. Yeah. yeah All right? There's, yeah. Some, there's some profit in there. Right, right. There's yeah. a lot going on down there. So CBP made what's referred to as a demand for duty of, I think it was like $250 million. That doesn't even include any civil penalty that possibly could be assessed against this, it was, whether the courts decide it was, in fact, illegal and they did it with manifest intent to how, avoid how does payment. how does CBP find out when something like this is going on to even enforce? That's a specific example of where CBPs had to take action to prevent a good from entering the U.S. without someone paying for well, it. Well, the right? van comes in. The van's got seats. I mean, how do you know what's going to happen next? Yeah, like how do you enforce this stuff? Well, you know, we had a, a, a saying. We always used to say we always first and foremost catch the greedy and the stupid. Uh, smugglers. I mean, there's a lot of not a bad. Yeah, that's uh, the, the greedy, that's but, what but, we call low hanging fruit. So there's a lot, <laughs> of, and the greedy and the stupid smugglers might be really sophisticated companies. companies. That's right. Yeah. So, you huh. know, somewhere somebody would have thought, in a company that size, they have enough in-house compliance, customs experts, legal experts that somebody would have done extreme due diligence and then would have asked- And they say, aha, if I take out this seat and stick it in the trunk, yeah. it's going to be this much less money towards the bottom line of importing this truck. Right. And the yeah, way and then, CBP kind of avoids people saying, well, I don't know. It was an innocent mistake. It's kind of like saying, I drive in from Northern Virginia into D.C. every morning. I do 75 miles an hour. I had no idea the speed limit was 35. Right. <laughs> what? You mean there's a speed limit? Mm-hmm. Right below. I, I think I've, I've run into every camera in Maryland oh, yeah. and Virginia. Oh, Maryland, there's... D.C., and Virginia. Like, that's true. I've got a list of them in Maryland. They publish a list. Oh, that's great. Every single camera. Would you like it? Oh, Would it help you? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I, I'm so frustrated. Andrew point. finds out the hard way. He yeah. gets the ticket. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the camera at the bottom of the hill. Oh, yes. By AU. Yeah, is just offensive. I'm just going to go out there and say that. I mean, like, I'm with you. like, like, you can't put a camera at the bottom of a hill. Oh, this is the one going north on Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. that's a terrible camera. It's a terrible I know camera. That one. Yeah. So that got me. That was the one that got me. See, this is a total spinoff podcast. We can do a whole <laughs> podcast on traffic cams in the DC area. <laughs> the, 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 the manifest unfairness of these yeah, traffic we cams. Can, we can do this. We can do this. But back to your point, Al. I mean, so how does this all happen? You know, so what happens is people import and they just believe that everything is going to be facilitated through. And, and I bring up that word facilitation because if you were to ask me during my tenure at CBP, uh, what was your biggest accomplishment? You know, when you were in the field in the uniform of arresting people or you know, uh, seizing large amounts of narcotics or whatever. Or, most of my former colleagues might, you know, be depressed. It was an administrative act. And actually, if you go onto CBP's website, uh, we were able to change the word of their mission statement. It used to have the word facilitation. It now has enabling. Uh, so it's to safeguard America's borders, thereby protecting the public from dangerous people and materials while enhancing the nation's global economic competitiveness by enabling legitimate trade and traffic. So, you know, the CBP offices are not just waving things through. They are actively enabling legitimate trade and they're working with the trade community who wants all the nefarious activity to be removed so that there's a competitive. Well, so whether other people say, hey, you should go look in that warehouse. They're pulling, sure. them, they're pulling seats out of a van and popping out windows 
And then all of a sudden, CBP approached this uh, large automotive industry, <laughs> and then their lawyers yeah. invoked the word practice. Right. And I said, what does practice mean? And someone says, well, you know, the lawyer said, well, that means if you've been doing things for so long, then, you know, a reasonably prudent person would believe it's legal. And I said, well, can I use that word practice when the highway patrol stops me? And I said, I've been driving 70 miles an hour for the last five years. Why are you giving me a ticket? Because the speed limit's 55. No, but this cooperative uh, approach is really important be- and because the people who are engaging in commerce, what you're calling the trade, very much wants to help CBP Absolutely. focus your resources on bad things and bad people. All right, and so there's there's a lot of efforts. Uh, I remember working with the people in in that business, okay, and they're they're delighted to work with CBP, help solve problems together. Uh, it, it, there's mutual benefit, obviously. It helps their stuff move more smoothly, right. but it also helps CBP focus its resources where where it ought to be. Right. You know, it's a great point. I, I was at an APEC meeting uh, once, and I, a woman stood up, and from the trade community and said, you know, I'm really concerned about, you know, the knowledge of custom services around the world, fully understanding the supply chain. And I answered to her, was, I, I will tell you, having gone around the world and attended the World Customs Organization, which represents 183 custom services, I said, I don't think there's any custom service in the world, including the United States, that understands the complexities of the supply chain, which many would say is should be really the supply network, right. much more complex than just a chain, that they have as well of an understanding as the people who have been doing this for 30 years in the trade industry, the brokers, the importers, the freight forwarders. And so I think what CBP realized is they, we created two terms that we need to do bi-directional education with mm-hmm. the trade. We need to learn from them. And then that education they were teaching us we would share our enforcement objectives, but when they told us how the industry really works, our enforcement protocols became so much more effective because right. we were more sophisticated in how we apply them. And then we actually went to co-creation, mm-hmm. never to be confused with co-management, mm-hmm. but they, as you allude to, they wanted all these illicit actors out of their environment. Sure. So we co-create enforcement protocols and procedures we manage them. We take responsibility, I should say. My f- former colleagues manage them. And the agency became much more effective. If anybody wants to understand the complexities over the last, like, hundred or so years, the Congressional Research Service, November 28, 2018, wrote a paper on U.S. tariff policy overview. And it really gives a historical perspective of how duties were very high, then duties during numerous administrations came down lower, and now under this administration, it's going back significantly high. We like and respect CRS. In fact, Bill and I know people <laughs> we all grew up on CRS. Yeah. The, the person who supervised that paper used to work for me. Yeah, so, there you go. So, so Bill, you she's get very the good. <laughs> they do terrific work, and uh, I, uh, we'll, we'll try to link to this on our on the yeah we can page. Do that. Let me ask you this though. So we're talking about long established rules, but what about some of the new stuff? Like, how's the growth of e-commerce impacted the Border Protection Agency? In a very, very, very big way, I would look at e-commerce as a disruptor. I mean, it completely just upended the entire import-export supply chain. And unfortunately, 
not CBP itself, but the process by which CBP is allowed to move and be nimble and agile, which is the notice of proposed rulemaking. So we were at, a, and let me cover that point very quick before I tell you how disruptive and how you know challenging it is with the evolution of e-commerce. So we have these CBP trade symposiums every mm-hmm. year, and you know to keep this lighthearted, CBP has an office of trade uh, representative, like an ombudsman's office. And this woman said, okay, at the end of this symposium, which is generally attended by 1,000, 1,500 people, mm-hmm. said, we're going to have an open mic. And I'm like, an open mic? Anything anybody an wants to say. Like singing even your, or facial, even or, your yeah. facial expressions around this table yeah, like are in agreement open mic w- night w- at with CBP? me. Karaoke would be a lot more fun. But. Well, you know what? <laughs> it's amazing. I said to this woman, I said, I don't do karaoke. We're not doing an open mic. But you know what? To her credit, she was right. We did the open mic. Yeah. Right? And so then it went well. We all survived. Nobody got fired. And then somebody said, okay, well, what keeps me up at night? Mm-hmm. And I said, what keeps me up at night is that if everyone in this room agreed that we should do something, which would never happen, but if a thousand people agreed we should do something and it required legislative change, we would have to issue a notice of proposed rulemaking and there's an exception, you could do what's called an interim final rule you could, for just cause. But normally, that process takes 30 to 36 months. I said, with cyclical development and the rapid pace of which the supply chain is changing, by the time we get this rule in to support this great idea, this great idea will be obsolete. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the evolution of the <laughs> supply chain, I'm going to blame maybe my 30-year-old daughter and her millennial colleagues. They know what they want. They want what they want, and they want it yesterday. And so if that's driving the Alibabas, the Amazons, the express consignments, CBP, as they try to adapt their regulations and their rules, just can't seem to do it quick enough at the pace of which e-commerce is, is moving. So to their credit, you know, the commissioner being supported by the executive assistant commissioner, you know, Brenda Smith, you know, put forth an initiative called 21st Century Customs Framework mm-hmm. to try to identify all these, like, risks that are coming out of a positive thing. It's truly stimulating the economy, economic prosperity, economic uh, competitiveness. But in order to for CBP to support that change and to enforce and police that change, some of the legislation and rules have to be changed, and the process by which to do that has to be changed. You know, it's, it's like a root cause analysis. This is a common problem that the digital universe has created. I mean, even when I was in the government, which was early days of all this, I had this one of the more interesting conversations was with somebody at the Defense Department who was complaining that uh, the uh, Pentagon's procurement process was longer than the life cycle of the stuff they were buying. Right. Uh, and he was talking mostly about software, but sure. basically they were buying stuff that was going to be obsolete by the – they wanted to buy stuff that would be obsolete by the time they got permission to buy it. Right. And that in, – in, in the long run, it had a positive effect because it forced the Department of Defense to rethink – it, not just rethink its procurement policy, but rethink the process by which it, it uh, really designed products because what the thing that took so long was so many things were specially designed. Mm-hmm. And they realized if we could buy them off the shelf, it would be a lot quicker. But that then changes a lot of other things when you start buying off the shelf because all of a sudden you're a customer. 
for civilian companies, but even though you're the Department of Defense, you're a very, you know, from IBM's point of view, you're a very small customer right. compared to all the rest. Mm-hmm. So, so you get a much better suit when you buy a made-to-measure or a bespoke suit than when you buy it off the rack. This is the Hong Kong Taylor uh, argument, right? Yeah, or the Savile Row or the Milan or whatever. As someone who can't afford any of those things. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. difference between, <laughs> between the two goods. No. But on the e-commerce, tying s- several things that were stated, here's a perfect example of legitimate tariff engineering when you couple e-commerce with something called de minimis. Right. De minimis is one of these things we usually ask Scott to explain because that's like one of the, you know, Yes, just call me Dr. De Minimus. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, De Minimus is the- Better is, than Dr. Is, Demento. I... <laughs> much better, thank you. But it's the threshold under wh- a value of the of the shipment or value of the, the good under which the basically the rules are suspended. Now, the threshold for De Minimus used to be very low and in some countries still is low. I think Canada is like $15 US, $20 Canadian. Right. But, but it was raised to several hundred dollars. And so a lot of these e-commerce shipments fell under the threshold and therefore were no longer subject to so many rules and so much time-consuming activity uh, by both the shipper and the customs authority. So, Al, did you get it right? Yes, yes. Ah. I'll, I'll put some numbers to it. So, de minimis used to be $200, and the economists and you know the brilliant minds within the government determined that collecting duty on any shipments at $200 or below was probably going to cost the government more in administrative processes than the actual duty that you're going to collect. Uh, several industries pushed the de minimis got raised to $800. Uh, and so anything under $800, generally there's no duty assessed, as well as it's allowed to come into the country as an informal entry. So even the requirements as far as the paperwork necessary for clearing something into the country is less. So now what you have, which has created an additional burden, you said, how is e-commerce affecting CBP? You have companies who, rather than ship in a complete container, either a tractor-trailer or a maritime 20-foot or 40-foot container, and bring that into the country and pay duty on that shipment. Let's say that shipment was $1 million. Well, now they're moving their product north of the border into Canada, and they're breaking down the shipments into individual smaller shipments of like $750. And now they're bringing them in and not having to pay duty. So if you were going to pay 10% duty on a shipment of a million dollars, you're paying 100000 And now if you just break it down, it's like a legal tax loophole to now avoiding this payment of, so of duty. You can invest taxes. something slightly below $100,000 in labor mm-hmm. to break down the load and, and ship it separately rather than doing it. So. And, and the other challenge I'll just share with you, express consignment shipments, mm-hmm. and this isn't a reflection of the express consignment uh, aircraft or airlines not doing a great job, they do, and they provide tremendous information. It's a tremendous way for drug smugglers to move their commodities from one part of the country to the other. Think of this. You could send a small shipment, and you can have it tracked. You'll know when it arrives. You'll know when it doesn't arrive. You'll know if it got diverted. So if you want to send an illicit shipment, narcotics, fentanyl, whatever, from the East Coast over to the West Coast, why would you risk bringing it and carrying it yourself, either on an aircraft or putting it in a car and driving it across? Just send it express consignment. You've probably you know, done a pattern of life surveillance of 
Al Gino on the West Coast, you know, he and his family are not home during the day. You know, they live in a great neighborhood. That packages will be left on the, the stoop or on the front of the house. And you know that the package was delivered, and it's in the middle of the day. And you just go and take your package of drugs that got transported for you in a very, very efficient supply chain that's evolved into this new Is this happening? Industry. I am way it too happens. naive it about all the, the world. Time. That's really interesting. <laughs> and then, and then that. Does, think about it. The <laughs> drug smugglers or these illicit actors, if you were a salesperson and you made seven out of ten sales, you'd be considered over-the-top fabulous. Mm-hmm. Sure. You'd be extremely wealthy. So drug shipments, they send them all kinds of different ways. They send them this way, and if two or three get caught, great. If seven get through and- You're batting 700. And you only need one conspirator on this side and only one conspirator on the others, and if the agencies, state and local, or anybody detects it, you can go into any express consignment, you know, I don't want to name them, and you can take anybody's business card and you say, I'm John Doe, and I'm shipping it to Jane Smith, and- and Jane Smith, the real Jane, Nevada. the real Jane Smith doesn't know the package is coming, so there's there's not a problem of reporting theft. That's right. Bill's trying to figure out how he can smuggle Beanie Babies. Yeah, but they, where he almost got caught the first uh, time. Yeah. Now, See, maybe you, this is you a You would only know. I'm just a guy who's who's been in the business world for most of my career, and I never imagined this stuff going on. So it's it's why law enforcement people, you yeah. know, you know think about I the world to, a little differently. I want to raise that. That's a thank you for that segue because when you asked, how does CBP know? Yeah. CBP is constantly trying to combat the ingenuity and the creativity of the smugglers. And they're thinking, like trying to detect what we refer to as their means, methods, and tactics by smuggling goods across the border, both in and out, outbound weapons, outbound currency. And people who are working in legitimate companies, like do this, maybe feel they're like skirting on the edge of illegal, but they're not your normal criminals. And they don't realize that there's a thousand ways by which you can be, uh, something can be detected as illicit. And they think, well, maybe two. Well, we'll do this, we'll do this, and we'll never get caught. Well, guess what? There's 50 other ways that the agency has capabilities for detecting illicit activity. You and me, I think you should take us out with a theme from Miami Vice or something like that. That would be perfect for this show. Al, Thanks a million for being here and running us through some of the real challenges that CBP has to go through when it comes to trade. I think we all learned a lot, and we'd love to have you back sometime. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed the opportunity to speak in a more informal, at points, jovial way on a very, very important issue. We're nothing if not informal. Yes, Trade guys are going on holiday, but we will be back in the new year, 2020, in January. We will be with you then. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.